Section one of Three Accounts of Peterloo, edited by F. A. Bruton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bishop Stanley and Stanley's account of Peterloo. Bishop Stanley, the Reverend Edward Stanley, seventeen seventy nine to eighteen forty nine, was the second son of Sir J. T. Stanley, the sixth Baronet, and Margaret Owen of Penross Anglesey. His elder brother was the first Baron Stanley of Alderley. As a boy, he had a natural inclination for the sea, but this was not encouraged. For thirty-two years he was rector of Alderley in Cheshire. While making himself beloved as a parish priest, he found time for many scientific and other interests. His familiar history of birds is a standard work. He advocated and assisted in the teaching of science and temperance at Alderley, and he became one of the first presidents of the Manchester Statistical Society. Though he declined the See of Manchester when it was offered him, he accepted from Lord Melbourne in 1837 the Bishopric of Norwich, and introduced a number of reforms into that diocese. A short memoir of him was written by his son, the famous Dean of Westminster. At the date of Peterloo, a number of clergymen sat on the bench of magistrates for Lancashire and Cheshire, but Stanley stated clearly at the trial that he was not a magistrate. He was then forty years of age, and rector of Alderley, and in his evidence he was careful to say that his narrative of Peterloo was compiled about two months after the event, for private circulation among his friends, and had never been published. It is clear that a copy was in the hands of counsel, who cross-examined him at the trial in 1822. The manuscript is very neatly written, I should conjecture by Stanley himself, on nine large quarto pages, the plan being drawn by the same hand, and the notes given at the end. I have thought it more convenient for the reader to have the notes thrown to the foot of the respective pages. The manuscript was lithographed in 1819 by the Lithographic Press, Westminster, and entered at Stationers Hall. I found on inquiry that there was one copy in the manuscript department of the British Museum. Add MSS 30142 FF 78 to 83. It is addressed to Major General Sir Robert Wilson and sealed with the Stanley crest. The authorship was not known, and the keeper of the manuscripts was glad to be able to add this to the document as a result of my communication. In the printed book department of the British Museum, there is a second copy, catalogued under Manchester, with press mark 8133i. There is no trace of Stanley's manuscript in the public records office. I can find no other copy but the one at the Manchester Reference Library, which is in excellent preservation and has recently been rebound. Mr. J. C. Hobhouse quoted from Stanley's narrative once in a speech in the House of Commons. Speaking on May 19, 1821, in support of a petition for an inquiry as to the outrage at Manchester, Mr. Hobhouse, following Sir Francis Burdett, said, The Reverend Mr. Stanley, who watched from a room above the magistrates, saw no stones or sticks used, though if any stone larger than a pebble had been thrown, he must have seen it. I have not found any other reference to the narrative, except that made by counsel at the trial, and that is recorded in the evidence which follows. Three notes may find a place here. The first two refer to points mentioned by Stanley. 1. Piggott and Dean's Manchester Directory for 1819 mentions 
a edmund buxton builder and company number six mount street dickinson street b thomas and matthew pickford and company carriers oxford street i do not find mr buxton's shop which is mentioned by stanley nor are pickfords described as timber merchants though timber may easily have been stacked in their yard stanley's movements on reaching manchester are not at a first reading quite clear riding in from alderley he seems to have approached by way of oxford road passing as he tells us the manchester yeomanry posted at pickford's yard at twelve o'clock he turned up mosley street very likely to avoid the crowd which was already filling the square and in mosley street he met the contingent of reformers coming from ashton he then proceeded to mr buxton's shop which seems to have been near the lower end of deansgate not finding mr buxton there he was directed to his residence in mount street the shortest way to mount street from alport would have taken him through the crowd he therefore approached mount street quote, by a circuitous route to avoid the meeting possibly by fleet street and lower mosley street the route afterwards taken by the hussars and met mr buxton on the steps of his house stanley evidently knew little of manchester he confesses in his narrative that he had not been in st peter's field before or since the tragedy in his evidence he said i know no street and stated that he could not locate the friend's meeting-house two stanley's estimate of a hundred yards as the distance from the hustings to mr buxton's house can be demonstrated to-day to be almost exactly correct this is only one of many points in his narrative which show what a shrewd quick and accurate observer he was when mr hulton was asked at the trial to estimate the same distance he conjectured four hundred yards and this was actually quoted as the distance in one of the standard histories of the period for the rest it seems better to leave stanley's extremely lucid account to speak for itself to annotate it in detail would be to spoil its completeness as has been stated above each observer witnessed the scene from his own standpoint a complete picture can only be obtained by forming a mosaic of the various reports stanley's narrative is that of an outsider who came upon the scene unexpectedly and watched the whole with the eye of a statesman and a statistician lieutenant jolliffe's account gives the view of a young soldier a stranger to manchester who rode in the charge of the hussars and afterwards took part with them in the patrol of the town mr j b smith speaks from the point of view of a manchester business man familiar with the civic and economic conditions that led to the catastrophe and his narrative reaches a few days beyond the tragedy itself samuel bamford's account too well known to need repetition here was written from the standpoint of a local weaver who had already suffered for his outspoken advocacy of parliamentary reform had a large share in organizing the peterloo meeting and served a term of imprisonment for his share in the proceedings an attempt to dovetail these and other reports into a continuous narrative has already been made in the story of peterloo ryland's library lectures nineteen nineteen three stanley's evidence at the trial which is here printed immediately after his connective narrative has been taken from macdonnell's state trials supplemented where passages are omitted by macdonnell by farquharson's verbatim report issued by the defence after the trial as a matter of fact macdonnell made use of farquharson's version the portrait of bishop stanley which appears here 
is from a print kindly lent for the purpose by Lord Sheffield. Stanley's notes attached to his plan. Reader's note. These notes refer to a sketch plan printed in the book. Never having seen St. Peter's Fields before or since, I cannot pretend to speak accurately as to the distance, etc. I should at a guess state the distance from the hustings to Mr. Buxton's house to be about a hundred yards, which may serve as a general scale to the rest of the plan. Key to Stanley's plan. 1. The hustings. The arrow shows the direction in which the orators address the mob, the great majority being in front. F. 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 2. The barouche in which Hunt arrived, the line from it showing its entrance and approach. 3. The spot on which the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry halted previous to their charge, the dotted lines in front showing the direction of their charge on attacking the hustings. 4. On this spot, the woman alluded to in the account, page 15, was wounded and remained apparently dead, till removed at the conclusion of the business. 5. Here the 15th Dragoons paused for a few moments before they proceeded in the direction marked by the dotted line. 6. The Cheshire Cavalry. My attention was so much taken up with the proceedings of the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry, etc., and the dispersion in front of the hustings, that I cannot speak accurately as to their subsequent movements. 777. The band of special constables, apparently surrounding the hustings. 888. The mob in dense mass, their banners displayed at different parts, as at XX. 999. A space comparatively vacant, partially occupied by stragglers, the mob condensing near the hustings for the purpose of seeing and hearing. 101010. Raised ground on which many spectators had taken a position. A commotion amongst them first announced the approach of the cavalry, their elevated situation commanding a more extensive view. Bishop Stanley's account of Peterloo. Soon after one o'clock on the 16th of August, I went to call on Mr. Buxton, with whom I had some private business. I was directed to his house overlooking St. Peter's Field, where I unexpectedly found the magistrates assembled. Footnote 1. I met Mr. Buxton on the steps of his house, not at all aware till then that his residence was at or near the place of meeting. I had been directed to his shop, considerably beyond the square to which I was proceeding, I state this to prove that what I afterwards saw was purely accidental, and that I had no previous intention of witnessing in detail the transactions of the day. As I came from the bottom of Alport Street on the Altrincham side of Manchester, my original directions were indeed to pass through St. Peter's Field as the shortest line, but I had taken a circuitous route to avoid the meeting, which led me to the corner of it near Mr. Buxton's house. End of footnote 1. I went up to their room, and remained there seven or eight minutes. Hunt was not then arrived. A murmur running through the crowd prepared us for his approach. A numerous vanguard preceded him, and in a few moments the barouche appeared in which he sat with his coadjutors, male and female. A tremendous shout instantly welcomed him. He proceeded slowly towards the hustings. On approaching the knot of constables, the carriage stopped a short time, I conceive from the difficulty of making way through a band of men who were little inclined to fall back for his admission. The barouche at length attained its position close to the hustings, and the speakers stepped forth. 
the female as far as i can recollect still remaining on the driver's seat with a banner in her hand i then left the magistrates and went to a room immediately above them commanding a bird's-eye view of the whole area in which every movement and every object was distinctly visible in the centre were the hustings surrounded to all appearance by a numerous body of constables easily distinguished by their respectable dress staves of office and hats on the elevation of the hustings of course eclipsed a portion of the space immediately beyond them so as to prevent my seeing and consequently asserting positively whether they were completely surrounded by this chain of constables footnote two it has been stated upon evidence which i should be unwilling to discredit that the body of persons more immediately in contact with the hustings were of hunt's party my reasons for believing them at the time to be as i was told special constables were because they resembled them in appearance were connected in their lines had their hats on and staves of office occasionally appeared amongst them mr hay in his official letter says a body of special constables took their ground about two hundred in number close to the hustings from whence there was a line of communication to the house where we were this is precisely my view of the case doubtless had the communication been cut he would have noticed it End of footnote two. had any interruption of their communication occurred previous to the change i think i must have perceived it from the commanding position i occupied the chain from this its main body was continued in a double line two or three deep forming an avenue to mr buxton's house by which there seemed to be free and uninterrupted access to and from the hustings had any interruption of their communication occurred previous to the change i think i must have perceived it from the commanding position i occupied a vast concourse of people in a close and compact mass surrounded the hustings and constables pressing upon each other apparently with a view to be as near the speakers as possible they were generally speaking bareheaded probably for the purpose of giving those behind them a better view between the outside of this mob and the sides of the area the space was comparatively unoccupied stragglers were indeed numerous but not so as to amount to anything like a crowd or to create interruption to foot passengers round the edges of the square more compact masses of people were assembled the greater part of whom appeared to be spectators the radical banners and caps of liberty were conspicuous in different parts of the concentrated mob stationed according to the order in which the respective bands to which they belonged had entered the ground and taken up their positions after the orators had ascended the hustings a few minutes were taken up in preparing for the business of the day and then hunt began his address I could distinctly hear his voice, but was too distant to distinguish his words. He had not spoken above a minute or two before I heard a report in the room that the cavalry were sent for. The messengers, we were told, might be seen from a back window. I ran to that window from which I could see the road leading to a timber yard, I believe, at no great distance, where, as I entered the town, I had observed the Manchester Yeomanry stationed i saw three horsemen ride off one towards the timber yard the others in the direction which i knew led to the cantonments of other cavalry i immediately returned to the front window anxiously awaiting the result a slight commotion among a body of spectators chiefly women who occupied a mound of raised broken ground on the left and to the rear of the orators 
convinced me they saw something which excited their fears. Many jumped down and they soon dispersed more rapidly. By this time the alarm was quickly spreading, and I heard several voices exclaiming, The soldiers! The soldiers! Another moment brought the cavalry into the field on a gallop, which they continued till the word was given for halting them, about the middle of the space which I before noticed as partially occupied by stragglers. Footnote 3. Some, by being better mounted or rather in advance, might have been more moderate in their pace, but generally speaking it was very rapid, and I use the word gallop as conveying the best idea of their approach. End of footnote 3. They halted in great disorder, and so continued for the few minutes they remained on that spot. This disorder was attributed by several persons in the room to the undisciplined state of their horses, little accustomed to act together, and probably frightened by the shout of the populace which greeted their arrival. Hunt had evidently seen their approach. His hand had been pointed towards them, and it was clear from his gestures that he was addressing the mob respecting their interference. His words, whatever they were, excited a shout from those immediately about him, which was re-echoed with fearful animation by the rest of the multitude. Ere that had subsided, the cavalry, the loyal spectators, and the special constables, cheered loudly in return, and a pause ensued of about a minute or two. An officer and some few others then advanced rather in front of the troop, formed, as I before said, in much disorder, and with scarcely the semblance of line, their sabres glistened in the air, and on they went, direct for the hustings. At first, i.e., for a very few paces, their movement was not rapid, and there was some show of an attempt to follow their officer in regular succession, five or six abreast. But as Mr. Francis Phillips in his pamphlet observes, they soon, quote, increased their speed, and with a zeal and ardour which might naturally be expected from men acting with delegated power against a foe by whom it is understood they had long been insulted with taunts of cowardice, continued in their course, seeming individually to vie with each other, which should be first. Some stragglers, I have remarked, occupied the space in which they halted. On the commencement of the charge, these fled in all directions, and I presume escaped, with the exception of a woman who had been standing ten or twelve yards in front. As the troop passed, her body was left, to all appearance lifeless, and there remained till the close of the business, when, as it was no great distance from the house, I went towards her. Two men were then in the act of raising her up. Whether she was actually dead or not I cannot say, but no symptoms of life were visible at the time I last saw her. Footnote 4 I am particular in mentioning these minute circumstances, because in this and some other points in which I could not be mistaken, I have been strongly contradicted. End of footnote 4. As the cavalry approached the dense mass of people, they used their utmost efforts to escape, but so closely were they pressed in opposite directions by the soldiers, the special constables, the position of the hustings, and their own immense numbers, that immediate escape was impossible. The rapid course of the troop was of course impeded when it came in contact with the mob, but a passage was forced in less than a minute. So rapid indeed was it, that the guard of constables close to the hustings shared the fate of the rest. The whole of this will be intelligible at once by a reference to the annexed sketch. On their arrival at the hustings, a scene of dreadful confusion ensued. 
the orators fell or were forced off the scaffold in quick succession fortunately for them the stage being rather elevated they were in great degree beyond the reach of the many swords which gleamed around them hunt fell or threw himself among the constables and was driven or dragged as far as possible down the avenue which communicated with the magistrate's house his associates were hurried after him in a similar manner by this time so much dust had arisen that no accurate account can be given of what further took place at that particular spot the square was now covered with the flying multitude though still in parts the banners and caps of liberty were surrounded by groups the manchester yeomanry had already taken possession of the hustings when the cheshire yeomanry entered on my left in excellent order and formed in the rear of the hustings as well as could be expected considering the crowds who were now pressing in all directions and filling up the space hitherto partially occupied the fifteenth dragoons appeared nearly at the same moment and paused rather than halted on our left parallel to the row of houses they then pressed forward crossing the avenue of constables which opened to let them through and bent their course towards the manchester yeomanry the people were now in a state of utter rout and confusion leaving the ground strewed with hats and shoes and hundreds were thrown down in the attempt to escape the cavalry were hurrying about in all directions completing the work of dispersion which to use the words given in wheeler's manchester chronicle referred to by mr francis phillips was effected in so short a space of time as to appear as if done quote, by magic i saw nothing that gave me an idea of resistance except in one or two spots where they showed some disinclination to abandon the banners these impulses however were but momentary and banner after banner fell into the hands of the military power footnote five it has often been asked when and where the cavalry struck the people i can only say that from the moment they began to force their way through the crowd towards the hustings swords were up and swords were down but whether they fell with the sharp or flat side of course i cannot pretend to give an opinion End of footnote five the extent of their defence may perhaps be best estimated by the gallant conduct which i particularly noticed of a man on horseback apparently a gentleman's servant unarmed as far as i could perceive he separated from the cavalry and rode directly into a compact body of people collected round a banner a scuffle ensued highly interesting the banner rose and fell repeatedly but ultimately fell into his hands and he galloped off with it in triumph during the whole of this confusion heightened at its close by the rattle of some artillery crossing the square shrieks were heard in all directions and as the crowd of people dispersed the effects of the conflict became visible footnote six on quitting the ground i for the first time observed that strong bodies of infantry were posted in the streets on opposite sides of the square their appearance might probably have increased the alarm and would certainly have impeded the progress of a mob wishing to retreat in either of those directions when i saw them they were resting on their arms and i believe they remained stationary taking no part in the transaction End of footnote six. some were seen bleeding on the ground and unable to rise others less seriously injured but faint with the loss of blood were retiring slowly or leaning upon others for support one special constable with a cut down his head was brought to mr buxton's house i saw several others in the passage congratulating themselves on their narrow escape 
and showing the marks of sabre-cuts on their hats. I saw no firearms, but distinctly heard four or five shots towards the close of the business, on the opposite side of the square beyond the hustings, but nobody could inform me by whom they were fired. The whole of this extraordinary scene was the work of a few minutes. The rapid succession of so many important incidents in this short space of time, the peculiar character of each depending so much on the variation of a few instants in the detail, sufficiently accounts for the very contradictory statements that have been given. Added to which, it should be observed that no spectator on the ground could possibly form a just and correct idea of what was passing. When below, I could not have observed anything accurately beyond a few yards around me, and it was only by ascending to the upper rooms of Mr. Buxton's house that I could form a just and correct idea of almost every point which has since afforded so much discussion and contention. The cavalry were now collected in different parts of the area. The centre, but a few minutes before crowded to excess, was utterly deserted. Groups of radicals were still seen assembled on the outskirts, screening themselves behind logs of timber, or mingling with the spectators on the pavement. The constables remained in a body in front of the house, waiting for the reappearance of Hunt, who, with his colleagues, were secured in a small parlour opening into the passage to which I had now descended. I believe the original intention was to send him to the new bailey in a carriage, but it was soon after decided that he should walk. When this was made known, it was received with shouts of approbation, and, quote, bring him out, let the rebel walk, was heard from all quarters. At length he came forth, and notwithstanding the blows he had received in running the gauntlet down the avenue of constables, I thought I could perceive a smile of triumph on his countenance. A person, Nadin, I believe, offered to take his arm, but he drew himself back and in a sort of whisper said, No, no, that's rather too good a thing, or words to that effect. He then left the house, and I soon afterwards also went away. I saw no symptoms of riot or disturbances before the meeting. The impression on my mind was that the people were sullenly peaceful, and I had an excellent opportunity of forming an opinion by suddenly coming into contact with a large body from Ashton, who met me in Mosley Street as I entered the town. Footnote 7. On entering Mosley Street at twelve o'clock, I stopped to question some persons on the footway respecting the proceedings of the day. When about to proceed, I was recommended to move from the middle of the street to the path, as the mob were advancing. I declined, suspecting my advisers might be radicals, adding, I am on the King's Highway, and shall remain where I am. I mention this because I have heard it reported that I was insulted by the Ashton people, which may have originated from the above account. End of footnote 7. They were walking at a moderate pace, six or seven abreast, arm in arm, which enabled them to keep some sort of regularity in their march. I was soon surrounded by them as I passed, and though my horse showed a good deal of alarm, particularly at their band and flags, they broke rank and offered no molestation whatever. As soon, however, as I had quitted Mr. Buxton's house at the conclusion of the business, I found them in a very different state of feeling. I heard repeated vows of revenge. You took us unprepared. We were unarmed today, and it is your day. But when we meet again, the day shall be ours. How far this declaration of being unarmed men may be relied upon, I cannot pretend to say. I certainly saw nothing like arms either at or before the meeting, 
their sticks were as far as came under my observation common walking sticks that some however were armed i can have no doubt as a constable when i was leaving mr buxton's house showed me a couple of short skewers or daggers fixed in wooden handles which he had taken in the fray i have heard from the most respectable authority that the cavalry were assailed by stones during the short time they halted previous to their charge i do not wish to contradict positive assertions what a person sees must be true my evidence on that point can only be negative i certainly saw nothing of the sort and yet my eyes were fixed most steadily upon them and i think that i must have seen any stone larger than a pebble at the short distance at which i stood from thirty to fifty yards and the commanding view i had i indeed saw no missile weapons used throughout the whole transaction but as i have before stated the dust at the hustings soon partially obscured everything that took place near that particular spot but no doubt the people defended themselves to the best of their power as it was absolutely impossible for them to get away and give the cavalry a clear passage till the outer part of the mob had fallen back no blame can fairly be attributed to the soldiers for wounding the constables as well as the radicals since the chief distinguishing mark the former being covered and the latter uncovered soon ceased to exist every man for obvious reasons covering himself in haste the moment the dispersion commenced such are the leading features of this event to which i can speak positively comments and opinions i have avoided as much as possible my object being to give a clear and impartial account of facts which whether for or against the adopted conclusions of either party must speak for themselves end of section one